Oh yeah, here we go, practice acquisition. There are pitfalls throughout the entire process. If you wanna buy a practice, this is how, folks. Acquisition Unscripted, the truth when buying and selling a dental practice. And now your host, Michael Dencio. All right, all right. Here we go. Another episode of Dental Acquisition Unscripted. Again, Mike Dencio with Next Level Consultants. And today we have a special guest and friend. I always say that special guest and friend, but actually... Tyler is a pretty good friend of mine, and we've had him on the show before on the startup side of things, I believe. But today, uh, we are going into the acquisition side. So um, special, special guest to me and friend, Tyler Jones. Thanks for being a part of the program, my friend. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. You know, when I thought about this episode this morning, I said this is going to be fun because we're going to actually get into some weird stuff today. And uh, I feel like you know, we're always talking about topics like, you know, how to do an LOI and and how to get your banking terms good. But today is like real world, like how to tell if you're going to struggle in an acquisition. We're going to go through uh, four or five different things that just should be red flags as you go into the process. And no no better than Mr. Tyler Jones, partner at HealthSell Fetterman to to help me and navigate me through this conversation. And and so Tyler, just tell, tell us a little bit about your firm, what you do and, and how you help people. Sure, so my name is Tyler. I'm in charge of our tax group and our health group. So I work almost exclusively with dentists in kind of all phases of their career, but a large chunk of that is buying and selling practices. So we do startups, employment agreements, Department of Health things, but uh, kind of my passion has always been acquisitions. I like buying and selling practices and it's intellectually stimulating. And I'm excited to uh, talk about this because as I was getting ready for it, thinking about, well, I could just tell war stories for hours with Mike, but <laughs> what do they Which we all, do for lunch all the time? Yeah. But what do they all have in common is more interesting. And actually it was kind of easy to get them down to like, what are the five things that I hear when I'm taking an intake call from a client, you know, who's talking to their lawyer for the first time where I go, you know, that's not necessarily a problem yet, but <laughs> there's a high degree of likelihood that this will become an issue. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes the clients are really concerned with the minutia, like the purchase price and how the AR is going to be bought and when they're going to meet the staff. And I I'm thinking as Mike is about, you know, some things that, that aren't even on their radar. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that because, you know, we, I personally take just like you, a lot of calls from prospective clients, like, like our listeners and, and, and soon to be clients, but like, they'll be running through the scenario in the first 15 minutes. And I'm asking my questions and you're asking your questions and it's the calls where it's like, oh boy. And then, oh boy. Oh shit, here we go. <laughs> like like and and they're super excited about it because you know, look, like you guys have never bought a practice. You you know, you haven't done hundreds like we have and so and and th this episode is all about 
kind of putting in in one 45 minute episode of like all of our experience and what we've seen historically be be challenges post close so let's get into the first one and by the way folks we are live i keep uh reminding you all if if you're not uh if you didn't know we you can literally chat with us um and and you can get a you can go on to our facebook and youtube and look at the schedule and not too many people do that, but you're welcome to. So if anything stimulating comes through the chat, we're happy to address it. But Tyler, with that being said, let's go through the very first one that you had in mind, uh, and then I'll go on the next ones. So I'll give you the first one. What's what's the first one that comes to your mind on hot issues going into transitions? The number one thing that I would say, just from an intake call where you go, this one's going to be a little harder than the average transition is, is this the seller's second practice? Does the seller own more mm. than one practice? Yes. Brokers tend to think like all practices are the same. If you own five, you can sell them one at a time. But I think <laughs> what buyers don't appreciate is there is no practice owner who owns multiple practice that isn't sharing resources between those practices. You know, it makes you think, I, I love this one. Thank you for bringing this one up. This one was on my list as well, but like, Let's talk about this. So I'll redefine it and say in Dinzio uh, style, just to, to say it again. So someone owns a second practice or a third practice. Do they own multiple practice and they're peeling one off and selling it to potentially you? What, like, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Because I'm thinking about like 17 things right now, why that could be a challenge. Well, the first thing I always say is no one is going to sell their best practice. They're going <laughs> to sell the one that's got problems. So you got to yeah. figure out what the problems are because there's a reason it's getting peeled off. So, so, so you're already thinking, okay, why? It's almost like when you're dating. Well, me and you are old married men now, uh, kids. We have a totally different life. But when we were single, you know, why? What's wrong with this girl? Like, why? <laughs> why isn't she married she's you know what i mean it's like what's going on here so it's kind of like you're instantly thinking you should be anyways yeah uh why didn't why why is this guy doing this or gal's doing this yeah is the lease about to expire and the landlord's not being very cooperative did they just have a bunch of employees quit and the owner said i can't do this anymore and so they've sent a common problem is, is you'll see they have two or three practices, but there's an associate in this one. Mm -hmm. And the associate is basically a hygienist. Yeah. And so you're sitting there going, okay, well, how much money is this practice really going to spin off? And then if you peel back the onions, you know, how many employees are shared between the practices, you know, how many, pa how many patients are shared between the practices? Totally. And you start figuring out, Oh, so if he diagnoses something at this location or she, do they actually get the crown seated somewhere else? Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. is the, is the fancy machine at the other location? Yeah. Are they sharing expenses? Mm -hmm. You know, does the CPA get booked under both or just one? So it looks like there's more cash flow coming out of this practice yeah. than the other. Yeah. You just got to be hyper diligent when you're looking at a second office because, yeah, sometimes they are great. Maybe the seller's practices are too far apart. Orthodontists are this way and they just want to focus on one. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, you immediately have to start figuring out, well, who are you going to be working at the taking with you, right? Because if you have staff that are between the two of you, 
mm-hmm. they have an easier out to quit and go get a job. That's right. That's right. And that's the number one thing that buyers have the hardest time with. They go, well, I don't care if they work somewhere else on their day off. And I have to go, oh, you do care. Because the first time you make a change, they will go running. Yeah. I like, like from a legal perspective, Tyler's got his like super protective, protective hat on. There, there are things that Tyler you can get into that contract to try, to try to save some of the risk. But what I found though, and, and this is actually going to be a theme for all of these ideas and, and topics that we're going to go over today. So Tyler can really lawyer up and really put a bunch of stuff in the purchase and sale. But here's the thing, like, and you and I have been a part of a lot of deals. Are you really going to pursue them when they break the contract? And I would tell you, Nine out of 10 times, my clients, probably your clients, Tyler, it, it, what are you going to go to small claims court over a five, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 issue? It's probably not worth it. No, that's why it's not enough to just put in the agreements when you're doing these types of deals where it's a second practice, what you want to happen. Of course you should, but you kind of need to set the stuff in motion beforehand. Like we had one where they had a shared cloud server between the practices and oh, we God. needed to schedule and we were adamant we're going to schedule in advance the split of the mm. server so that we're not sharing information mm. and the seller fought and fought and fought right didn't want to do it didn't want to do it before closing and the buyer eventually you know said i trust him i think he'll do it and did he do it no no, no. anytime software is colluded that's going to be a tough one to, 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 to handle when it comes to billing or sharing files. I'm on one right now in Hawaii and uh, it, there's two practices and two softwares and two phone numbers. Actually, no, one phone number, one software, two practices, same books. So it's, it's literally the exact situation that we're describing here. And you just don't really know what you're getting. And so and it's really hard to do an evaluation from my side of things as far as a buyer's rep. Like you guys are asking me what the practice is worth. And, you know, in theory, it's worth X. But in all reality, post-close, we don't really know what we're getting truly. And if if I knew that, you could discount it. But the seller's not going to tell you, really, they're not going to be. And, and by the way, the sellers don't 100% know how it works either. So they're not all evil. It's just it's a transition and stuff doesn't go the way it's planned. Totally. Like you have the one I'm, I'm thinking of one right now where, you know, the seller didn't realize this, but his CPA was paying the office manager and the front office staff for both locations out of one practice, the one that was not being sold. Mm-hmm. And I think you caught that and you identify that issue and you go, well, if you buy this practice immediately, you're going to have way more overhead than mm-hmm. what these financials show. Yeah. It's not that the seller was trying to get away with anything. It's just they don't know. They don't know. They don't yeah. get that granular. I will say, though, that the number one thing that happens when someone owns multiple clinics is there's some piece of equipment in that clinic that the seller thinks belongs to the other clinic. 1,000%. If it's the endo motor or the implant kit or, hell, I've had a chair taken out of a practice before. <laughs> a totally. chair. And, and – you always, they always have say to, just oh it's on loan from the other clinic that was on loan on <laughs> right so the so there is an exclusion list but again what that's why we always have 
pick pictures and, and and a list and Tyler again you can button it up legally all day long Tyler could legal it up your your purchase and sale could be twice as long as a, as a normal boilerplate agreement but the what it comes down to is are you going to pursue legal actions if they break it and nine out of the ten of the times you don't and so you usually get screwed in that in that and and to to further this point two things number one if i own more than frankly two three practices you got to ask yourself why are they not selling it to a dso because that would be the smart move by the way if you have more than two three like the better play would be dso i hate to say it tyler and i are pro private practice but once you get a practice that's so big and not one person can handle that business it's, it, it, it might make sense to consolidate it. So you got to ask yourself that. But num- number two, when I was at the bank, the, the higher default rates were on second and third practices because they're harder. And so it's always an underperforming, frankly, shit show that you're buying. You got to find all these things out. You got to find a lot of things out. I agree. So I just always tell people the due diligence is going to be way harder. And you have to kind of coach the buyer up and say, listen, you're going to start asking the seller and their broker some questions that are going to come off as crazy offensive. And yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but you know, there's too many people start a second practice thinking I want to make more money. So I'll double my money with another location. Yeah. And the reality of it is, is it just turns into a loss leader almost instantly. It's, it's why, um, I won't go on record and say which bank, but there is a fairly large dental lender in the country that we would all know if I said the name and they just don't do second offices because of this reason. And it's a real, it's a real thing. Um, all right, let's switch. Let's switch to, to my, um, to mine. Okay. I got one for you. Um, to prove that we're, so this isn't really unscripted style. This is actually a, a scripted. it's scripted. This is actually a letter I got. If you're watching on YouTube, here's my notes. Uh, it's somewhat scripted. This is about as scripted as it gets. Um, all right. So here's mine. And it, and it seems to be like something that happens to you and me, Tyler, all the time. And it's uh, buyers, folks, you listeners, you guys have this like romantic idea. And, and I'll take those words out of Tyler because he always says it. And a romantic idea that the seller should stay on and jockey these patients over to you. And so post-close, doesn't it make sense to have them there? And they're they're literally hand-holding these patients over to you and say, no, no, okay? It doesn't happen, number one, the way you think it's going to happen. So, so my second one is the seller sells you the practice, gets his, his or her check, and then wants you to employ them post-close, uh, and they want a guarantee of how many days, and they also want a guarantee of how much production, and they also want to be paid 32 to 35% of production. So it's like this cake and eat it to situation. And buyers are like, oh, I'll do that because I'm they're gonna pass the goodwill. Have you have you ran into this? Um, <laughs> this <All the> week. <laughs> yeah, every week. I think the, the thing I always say is that. A seller who wants to sell their practice and work back for an extended period of time, kind of demanding that they work back. Because a lot of sellers will say, I- I'm happy to work back if you need me. Right. 
And that's fine. That's charitable and nice of them. But right. when the ones who say, I have to work for another year, you can't <laughs> fire me except for cause for one year. I get three full clinical days a week mm. at 35% of my production. Mm. That's a barometer that that person actually doesn't want to sell their practice. Yes. And they're selling it because they have to. Because so either yes. their spouse is pissed and wants them to retire mm-hmm. or they've been to enough seminars with insiders telling them you have to sell now. Now is the time to sell. Yeah. So they're, they're not ready to stop being a dentist. And basically, if you think about the overhead of a practice, how big does a practice really need to be if you're servicing debt on it? for it to be a two doctor practice. If it wasn't a two doctor practice when you bought it, how can it become a two doctor practice overnight? Yeah, and the number I always say is the practice is a bread and butter practice. It's 1.2 million, give or take. And if the practice is doing big cases, it could be one as much as 1.5 where you need another doc. So if you're anywhere south of a million dollars in collections, collections, not production, you don't need another dentist. And so what you're essentially doing is you're you're literally paying this person on production that you can do. And that probably is the exception, by the way, is if there's some kind of procedures and stuff that you're not capable of doing, you need them to keep that production up like Invisalign or maybe some complicated stuff. That might be the exception that I could get behind it. But when you're demanding so many days, essentially they're not making any money running this business. So they want you to buy it and then they want a guaranteed paycheck. (laughs) Totally. And the thing you have to remember is, is that it's not necessarily that they're paying and you're not making as much or producing as much, but it's just killer for the transition. Like without question, the people who sign those deals where, you know, I say you really shouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. They sign it. And six months later, the seller and the staff have kind of, formed these weird little clicks with each other and they're not getting behind the new schedule you want to put in place. And that's right. The seller's telling the office manager, do it this way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a case right now where this buyer bought and like a year later, he found out that anytime there was a big case, like a big implant case where there was Mm -hmm. no insurance. Yeah. The seller was telling the office manager, Hey, just run this over through my old books of my old company. Oh, I'll do this one through this one. (laughs) And the office manager is doing it. Now that's theft and wrong. And I'm not saying every seller who wants to do that wants to do that. But to go back to what Mike said, I just think that there's this thing that goes on on the internet. I think it starts on dental schools and then in dental schools. And then it gets kind of ratcheted up in like the dental dark web that a good transition (laughs) is like when the seller is with you chair side for 90 to 180 days. And that doesn't Honestly, I can count on one hand the number of times that that's been true. And I can count on many hands the number of times people call me and they say, I got to get Dr. Dinzio out of here. Out of there. Get him out of there. Yeah. So I have, a, I have a client right now in Arizona where we are practice consultants post-close, sellers still on, sellers' daughters' front office desk. Kiss the death. And she is uh, – probably underperforming and there's a there's a there's a conflict there's just conflicts all over the place so it gets even stickier when family's still there um and the cell that you know at the end of the day you have to think 
how much production can I give this person? Can I write a check for 30%, not 35% of that number? And will it still leave me enough to eat after the loan? And again, most of the time, if the practice is not over 1.2, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Doesn't totally. Make sense. And just from my perspective, doing the legal on it, it's just a sign that the seller doesn't actually want to sell. And so your acquisition process is going to be way harder because they don't have the cabin they want to go to more or they don't have the grandkids they want to spend more time with. Uh-huh. And so when you say, hey, I want you to pay for that in the transition or you need to get that fixed. They're just going to go, no, I don't really even want to sell anyways. And it just turns into this really degraded process that's nothing like when it's a seller who wants to leave and kind of go out into the sunset. And I'd always tell buyers, like, have more confidence in yourself. If it's a bread and butter dental practice, you don't need them. No, that's right. I'll, I'll last point and then I'll give you the next one. So be thinking of it. I, I have this conversation all the time with my my clients is uh, valuation in its most basic form is looking at historicals and figuring out what profitability was and then being able to pr- predict to that same profit profitability in the future. So, that, I mean, that's in the most basic form of valuation. So if the business was making X in the past and then in the future you're making less because the seller staying on and you got too many mouths to feed it should be discounted if they're staying on it. Again, cake and eat it too. It, 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 frankly, it's worthless in my opinion, if the seller is going to be taking a lot of profit out of it after the transition. So totally. And I'll end on this one soundbite. I have a case right now where the person let, it was like a $900,000 practice, really no business being a two doctor one. The buyer was just adamant that the seller can work back. He wanted it. The buyer was, you know, finishing up some other things in his life and needed someone to work back for him. And at the end of it, it just wasn't going to work out. There wasn't enough money to service the debt, mm-hmm. lost a couple staff members. The seller was making too much money working back mm-hmm. and the buyer had to fire that seller. Do you know how bad of a soundbite that was in a small town that the new owner of the practice had to let the seller go? That's <laughs> awful. It's so bad for patient attrition. They find out whether, you know, no matter how hard you try to button it up. And it, it ended up being so much worse than firing because all the staff learned that the seller was fired. And that's just such bad optics as opposed to, Hey, if I go on vacation, you can come in and work for me. But Mm -hmm. other than that, I took it over on this day. You just gave me an idea. Can we write into some contracts what the message can be if we have to let them go in the future? I mean, you could, but again, are you going to, or you can just avoid the problem to begin with. (laughs) Not have them work back. Hey, can we both agree that this will be your, the story when I fire you in six months? Um, Can we both agree on that during the trip? Yeah. If negotiations (laughs) weren't hard enough, let's start the breakup now. Let's get the sound bite. All right. What's your third one? What's your third one? Go. Uh, This one's kind of the other one is I, I think the most probably overly romanticized thing in like the dental dark web is the associate buy in. I, when people call me, they think they've got it on easy street. Hi, I've been working at a practice for 10 years. The seller's 50, I'm 35 and I'm going to buy in for a 50% 
interest now for $1.2 million. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to be sunshine and puppies because I already work in the practice and I know exactly how things are going to go. Right. And on paper, it sounds like just perfect, but mm-hmm. there's just so much stuff that goes into those. And the problem is, is the buyer has almost no negotiation power because if the deal doesn't go through, they're probably fired. The seller yeah. isn't going to keep them around afterwards. Yeah, we've had a couple of those um, that I'm thinking about. And we've only had a handful that were just like, um, for those YouTubers uh, that are watching, just bu- buyers like, I'm out, you know, F, F- you, I'm out. And uh, they had they had the grit and and um, good for them stubbornness to walk away from a bad deal, but they abs- that demolished their whole life. They had to move, had to make, got to go get an associate job, probably making less at the associate job. I mean, what a heartbreaker! Seller, by the way, also loses because now their production's dropping. It it's very. I always say like. Like you should be hiring more professionals on deals like that. And when, when in fact the opposite happens, they're like, oh, this is an easy deal. We're just making it happen. No, dude, these are way more complicated. You need way more professionals because you need a heat shield between you and the seller. (laughs) You need Tyler to blame for that nasty revision you asked for. Because like really the problems start almost from the first day. Yeah. You know, oh, okay, you're buying it at 1.2. You're doing 30% of the production. The seller's doing 70. If you start doing more and the practice increases in value in the next 10 years, are you going to buy the other half at the same method or do you want to freeze the purchase price? Why would you buy your own goodwill? Right. And usually you ask that question and it gets the associate's brain going. And a seller doesn't want to freeze the price for the second buyout. No, because they because they provided the opportunity for you they, to succeed. They gave you the golden touch. And yes. these are my employees, I my systems, I'm my in charge. New, my facility. So you had the opportunity to do this. And that's not how it happened when I bought in from the old guy. So, <laughs> yeah. No, this is this is really good. So uh, uh, the new um, problem has been if the seller's the landlord, they've been paying themselves $10,000 a month uh, in rent for the last 20 years. And then the second someone's going to be helping them pay rent, mm-hmm. the rent's 20 grand a month. <laughs> and they find so, their friend let, from the golf club to tell them that the rent is worth 20. Let's slow down. That's so super important. So not only are you probably overpaying for the practice, which I could get behind a little bit of 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 a value being slightly higher because it, they, they, they do tend to be they do tend to be good transitions because yeah. nothing's changed. So I could buy into the the value increase. It has to be reasonable, but Tyler mentioned the future value is in question. That's that's important. But then yes, if if they're the landlord, it, it it's it's Actually, you're the accountant guy. Why don't you explain it? So what do sellers or what do owners do to try to mitigate some some profit when they own the building and how that's messy? Slow, slow it down for, for Dinzio style. The, the problem is, is that a seller who owns his own real estate, or she does, they'll set up a rent payment between their two entities of 10 grand a month. 
and their CPA told them in 2002 that that's the sweet spot number for tax purposes. So it had nothing to do with the market or what market well, rents are. Nothing to do with It was a way that. to maximize tax brackets 20 yep. years ago and the seller never thought anything of it. They've been paying 10 grand a month. Yeah, They go and take their practice to a broker or to an evaluation person and the valuation person doesn't question. They go, oh, rent's 10 grand a month. So all of a sudden the value is based off rent of $10,000 a month. (laughs) And then you're about to become a 50% owner. So now half the rent is your responsibility. That's right. You don't own the real estate and the seller wants to do a lease at the Mm -hmm. time of closing for a new rent amount. And the rent amount never gets smaller. It's always going to be way bigger. Of course. The seller is going to say, yeah, maybe you could buy the real estate one day, but not today. You can't afford it. You can, you know, the bank loan Mm. kind of tapped you out. And so that's why I always tell people is if you, if the seller owns your real estate on an associate buy-in, you have to negotiate the lease at the time of the sale. Mm -hmm. So many people call and say, well, I was just buying in. So we did a lease assignment. And mm-hmm. it makes your interest harder to sell and you're just stuck and you're going to be, you know, writing, signing the front of checks mm-hmm. to the seller and his family for the rest of your career. If you don't have some pathway to ownership of that real estate, that's right. Or at least some control over the lease. So folks, just to break this even more simpler, simple when, if, if the seller didn't buy the building and you were negotiating with the landlord on the deal that you're looking at, you're pushing for market rates with that landlord. It should be no different just because the seller is your partner that owns the dental practice and also owns the building. But like we said, what makes these like the nightmare is that you have no bargaining power. Yes. And if this deal doesn't go through, Mm -hmm. you're probably fired or going to need to quit. You're not going to want to break bread with this person at lunchtime anymore. Mm -hmm. That's right. Those are the things you have to get just out in front of Mm-hmm. very early when you're going to do an associate buy. That's what I always say. Like if the average transition is somewhere between 30 and 90 days of prep, you kind of need to start the associate buy in like six months in advance. That's right. And have the right longer. And, and have the right expectations going into a, what you're doing here, because you're going to work hard. You've got a loan to pay. You're the junior partner now. And it's not the same as being 100% owner. You don't get all the fruit because because that's not how it works. You're doing this because you want a smooth transition. And yeah, and, and the that- way associate or partners pay themselves now, there's a large CPA group in the United States that has come up with a new formula for how partners pay each other. And it's Latin for whoever was making the most money before the sale will keep making the most money after the sale. <laughs> And you, cake, cake, eat it too, and then totally. the cherry, and then the cherry on top is real estate. So, you, so you're you're buying it for too much, probably. Which again, I'm okay. If you with. were making thirty five percent of production before you bought it, how much more are you really going to make after you buy it? <laughs> There's that. Then you're servicing a debt. They're not, and then you're overpaying for a lease. I mean, buy ins can be an absolute nightmare. And and uh, and they're challenging. And I guess I would distill it down to if you're doing a buy-in and the seller's not willing to talk about what the second buyout is when you buy the seller out completely, yeah. if they're not willing to have those conversations, it's a huge red flag. That's right. That's right. And and 
I mean, all kinds of things here, but folks, if you're associating or you're going to start a job and the carrot is, hey, ownership in the future, that makes this thing even more complicated because now your associate agreement has values attached to it. And it's, it's like a mini purchase and sale agreement at the associate contract level for a future purchase of maybe, a, I mean, it's just, it's, it yeah. gets, it gets really fun guys. There's, there's, um, the, those buy-ins sound great, but they, they definitely have some pitfalls. I have one. Um, okay. um, speaking of like expectations and like, um, getting all those up front, uh, I don't know how to say this other than just having mismatched expectations of going into a transition. Like I have a lot of clients that call me and again, on that initial interview and you're just like, Oh boy, Oh boy. Oh boy. Like it's, it's building up to be like the worst deal ever. And, and there's too many clients that think like uh, a, a practice that's underperforming they're going to go in and just crush, you know, and, and like, they're trying to get this amazing buy-in and then they're just this business tycoon with all this experience to explode a practice and be an amazing leader. And they just have this like expectation that it's going to go a certain way. Does that make sense? Totally. I, I kind of tell people when I'm talking to buyers at study clubs and stuff is before you even start thinking about buying practice, you got to know thyself, right? Because every single person says, I want to buy a $400,000 practice and grow it into a million dollar practice. <laughs> right. Every single person will say that. And that's great. But like, not everyone's a flipper, right? I'm not handy. I cannot flip a house. What I buy needs to be camera ready because I'm not able to fix it. <laughs> that's right. And that's the same for dentists. Is yeah. you have to know thyself, right? If do you have the energy to work six days a week? Do you have the energy to be a hygienist one column a day? Mm -hmm. It's a lot. And a practice that's doing four hundred thousand dollars, yeah, maybe you can grow it into a million. And I hope you do as your attorney, but yeah, you know, the kind of the mismatch expectations is is they'll say, Oh, Tyler, I found this great practice. What an opportunity, three hundred and eighty thousand dollars just outside of Phoenix or just outside of Boulder. And, um, but I have some concerns, some of the equipment's a little dated mm -hmm. and uh, the sellers uh, overpays his staff. And you kind of go, well, doc, that's why it's 380,000. That's right. You know, so they'll sign an LOI on a flipper and then they're shocked to learn that there's hair on it. Oh yeah. And so that just makes the transition so much harder because you're trying to work through this client's expectations mm -hmm. about what they're getting. And you go, hey, if you need camera ready, you know, with four hygienists, a dialed in office manager, and someone billing insurance, it's probably not it's probably not going to be a screaming deal. <laughs> it's going to be a $1.5 million practice. That's right. And you're going to have to back up the Brinks truck to buy it. I always, I always say to that point, ex-banker talking, like, look, you buy a practice for 500 grand. What's that? When, how, what's the average payoff on a $500,000 practice loan? Well, it's, it's seven to, to 10 years, give or take. Okay. Reverse it on a $2 million loan practice. What's the average payoff for that, that, that loan? It's, it's more than twice the amount again. 
seven to 10 years. It's because there's so much more cash flow on a $2 million practice. It's you're the smaller practices are hard. They're hard. So hard. The um, seller doesn't think it's a bad practice, right? Cause they don't have debt on it. And the mm -hmm. office manager is their wife and they don't have to pay their wife any money. Mm -hmm. And so for them, a practice doing 400 grand a year spins off 180 grand and they yeah. don't have a mortgage anymore. That was paid off 10 years ago and they don't have student loans and they're not collecting dogs and kids anymore. That's right. And so 180 goes a long way for them. Mm -hmm. But the 35 year old who buys it, who's still collecting dogs and kids, that 180 is <laughs> not going to go that far anymore. It's, it's not. I always get in the conversation of like startup versus buying a practice for 400 grand. They're like, oh, it's, it's, it's this is a great deal. You know, I'd, I'd end up spending way more on a startup and couldn't build it for that. You couldn't build it for that. But the the problem, I, I guess, I don't know how to say this better. I, I flipped a house once in, in an old life in Ohio. And I remember my dad telling me like, son, like, you know what you're buying, right? Like you're buying a really old house and you're planning on flipping it and you're getting it for a great value and it's in a beautiful neighborhood. I get it. But do you have the energy to literally rip the walls down, redesign it, get all this in, do all this? And I'm like, hell yeah. And I was in my 20s then. And I'm going to tell you right now, I would have saved money had I scraped that old ass house and just built a new house. And I'm not talking saved money as in dollar for dollar. I'm talking about time and money. I spent way more in that older house. Totally. And, and the other thing I think people forget is with inflation and higher practice price values the last like 10 years, mm. the way I talk about a $500,000 practice now is the way you and I would talk about $280,000 practices eight <laughs> years ago. Yes. And so it's when people true. say they have these flippers, yeah, but like even the flippers are twice as much as what they used to be. Yeah. And so the problem is, is people say, oh, 500, my friend who graduated eight years in front of me, he bought his for 280. Surely mm -hmm. this practice will be the one that I can get in. It'll spin off cash and I'll be able to grow it. But I guess it's not really as much of a nightmare. It's just about when you're talking to a client and it becomes really clear that mm -hmm. they want a deal, but they also want the cash that a, a big practice will support. And, you know, managing those expectations can make the deal really hard because you're going to have to go to the seller and explain why their practice isn't that great or why yeah. you need the ARs for free. And it's all, and it's also a hard negotiation. Someone that's on the side of the buyer negotiation process. It's also a very hard negotiation. It's like, is it worth three hundred or three fifty or two fifty? It's like I, I start losing valuation methods when when the practice is kind of worth nothing, and uh, two fifty is a lot of money. But when you amateurize something over 10 or 15 years, 250, 350, we're, we're talking about a $300 a month difference. It, it becomes irrelevant. What's more important naturally is, is it a decent lease? What team are you getting? Is the area too saturated? You almost look at it like a startup. You have to like break it down and, and look at the demographics and, and think about maybe I have to fire this whole team. You almost have to think about it that way. 
Yeah, I just they're the toughest ones to do. I always tell people that it's cheaper from a legal perspective to buy a $3 million practice than it is to buy a $300,000 practice. They're just every little dollar starts to matter. The landlord wants to raise the rent $100 for the new tenant. Yeah. Where is it going to come from? And it's just it's it's tough to find those expectations and the clients who you always go, "Ooh, that was a rough transition." That is not what they talked about in dental school. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, but you know, you got something for three. And to your point, I would just add that there's a temptation to always think, well, whatever I'm buying, I should get value for what I'm buying. And mm-hmm. really, like, once the price dips below 300 grand, you're not really buying it because of its cash flow or what a bank could loan on it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's more becomes what it's worth to you and bridging the gap between that and what a seller wants to sell it for. Yeah, it doesn't really like the people who go call and they go. Oh, I want it for two fifty, but the seller wants two seventy. He's overvalued it by twenty grand. It's not really possible. It's yeah. you know he wants two seventy, you want two fifty, and it's just kind of a horse auction at that point. I I do I do end up talking about like in in, in definition purposes like fifty thousand one way or another is a lot like going to Starbucks and getting a cup of coffee for $6, which is already expensive. Or should I just upgrade to like maybe a nitro cold brew? Like it's the same decision. It's just preference. And that's kind of like 350 or 300. And that's hard to explain, explain to my clients a lot. But at the end of the day, like it's cheap. That that's the answer. It's cheap, um, but fifty grand is a lot of money. I don't know how to explain that sometimes. Totally. And then the second they close on it, they'll call and they'll say, "Hey, the paper towel dispenser in the bathroom doesn't work." <laughs> <laughs> that, that that no 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 joke. Like I think that's that's kind of where I was going with that topic. Was like, don't think you're buying like a fantastic acquisition if if you know what you're buying. It's already cheap. It's probably not good equipment. It's probably not a good team. It's probably not a great patient base. It's probably a mediocre lease. Like you're buying a flipper and sometimes scraping it and starting new is better. But if you're okay with a flipper, then be okay with a flipper. Totally. If you value a two minute drive to work and this practice is two minutes from your home. Perfect. Put some dollar value on that. But, you know, understand what you're buying, I guess, is the point. All right, you got one more. We're at, we're almost out of time to make this a top five. What's your fifth? I don't know if I have a fifth. I don't know. I would about- probably say the fifth is the seller isn't using a broker or an <laughs> that's, attorney. That's a perfect one. Or or a buyer's rep. No, I'm joking. That that, no, that seems but- to be a, 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 a something unique these days. But definitely brokers. Yes. Go ahead. People always get nervous. Oh, there's a broker on the deal. You know that usually they make the transition smoother. They have a moderating effect on a seller's worst instincts. Mm-hmm. They're able to have tough conversations with sellers. Like, hey, that's normal. You just need to agree to that. I and, would I would say just in general, less less people involved is actually worse for both sides. Right. When I have a deal that just closed in September. It was unbrokered because the practice was smaller and struggling and the guy didn't want to pay for a broker. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 
it took eight months to get it closed. Yes. The seller didn't want to hire an attorney, so he's calling me every night just reading the changes he wants made. Ugh. He's been in a practice alone his whole life with his, you know, a couple staff members. So the joke I always make with the client is, yeah, you're the first person to tell him no in your his professional life. And it took a lot to get the practice sold to my client at a price that was right with adequate protections. Yeah. I, and I always tell people that when someone doesn't want to hire an attorney, I, I get it. Attorneys are the worst, and but they also don't want to hire a broker and they think that they can, well, you know, yeah. they think that they can just negotiate through it because they're an expert in everything. Yeah. It's just a barometer that it's going to be a tough deal. It's going to be a tough deal. Red flags back to the, the title. I don't know if that's your experience. Do you, if someone, do you look for, I mean, are you happy if they have a dental CPA to counter you? Are you happy if they have a not, dental attorney? Not so much CPAs, but definitely brokers. I would prefer, I know that sounds strange to folks probably in the audience, but I would definitely prefer a representative on the other side. Now, obviously I'm biased because I want a representative for my clients, I think it would. I think it's crazy not having someone like me. Doesn't have to be me, but like me on the other side. Just the more people involved, the more eyes. And it's not because we're just trying to get into your back pocket. It's because Tyler has the legal covered. Mike has the business covered. Your CPA has the tax stuff covered. The banker has their stuff covered. Like insurance people with their things. Like. All of these people working together to make sure that a, a seven to a million dollar investment is being looked at, right? What a cheap insurance to hire folks to help you across the finish line. I agree with that. And I'm also super respectful of the fact that, you know, 20 years ago, AFCO had a 12 page agreement that every person in the country bought and sold a practice with. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's hard for sellers when they see that leases are now 60 pages and, yeah. you know, yeah. non-competes are five pages and the DSO that they're selling to has 110 pages of contracts. <laughs> oh like, God, I get that that's hard for some people, but it's usually a barometer. I know I said that word a couple times of who you're dealing with, but when they're confronted with difficult or someone not just saying yes to everything they want, mm -hmm. that the response is, is I don't want to work with professionals to help me. Yeah. So I always view that as kind of like whenever someone says, hey, Tyler, I'm buying this practice, but the seller doesn't want to use an attorney. They want you to draft the contracts and they'll read it. And Bad there's no broker. Yeah. You know, the, the client always thinks like, oh, goal with no goalie or something. But God. it's actually <laughs> so much worse. Goal with no goal. I, that's 100 uh, percent. And I also think that they think it's worth more and they've talked to some brokers and brokers are also disagreeing with their value, the sellers. Right. And here they are thinking it's worth 700 and it's really worth 450. And they've talked to three practice brokers and all the practice brokers are saying it's worth at most five. Like that, like why, you know, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. So, um, well, my friend, it's been it's been fun. Top five uh, potential issues heading to closing. When uh, I I will say when five red flags for your acquisition. Five red flags for your acquisition, and um, y folks, if you've ever done a transition, you're listening to this, and you've gone through some of these scenarios, you probably know exactly what we're talking about. So please comment 
below. Um, Tyler, thanks so much uh, for, for I, being on the show, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Can I give you the sixth freebie? Oh, six, go. Seller has an AOL.com email address. <laughs> AOL is definitely a red flag. Well, with that being said, Tyler, thanks again for being on the show. And folks, make sure you're following and, and getting on YouTube and, uh, and and being a part of what we're trying to do over here. So until uh, next time, uh, I'll see you guys soon. Tune in next time for another truth-filled episode of Acquisition Unscripted. We want to hear from you. Interact with your host, Michael Dencio. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Comment and subscribe.